Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. We're so glad to be back in studio, and I hope that everyone listening is having a wonderful, blessed day. You can catch us right here on your favorite Catholic radio station each week at the same time. But if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, just visit us at mncatholic.org podcast or look for the Bridge Builder podcast on your favorite podcast app. Today we're joined by Monsi Alvarado. She is the executive director and vice president of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. We're going to talk with her in a moment about a number of cases that the Supreme Court is hearing and examine what is being done to defend religious freedom faithfully and with integrity. First, wanted to mention that today's show is sponsored by the St. Joseph Business Guild, which supports Catholic families by connecting Catholic business owners to workers and customers and provides its members with opportunities for professional and spiritual growth. Learn more about the St. Joseph Business Guild at sjbusinessguild.com. Again, sjbusinessguild.com. You or your business can become a sponsor of the Bridge Builder Program show, just like the St. Joseph Business Guild. Doing so, you'll reach customers who appreciate your support of solid Catholic programming. To become a sponsor of the Bridge Builder podcast, email us at show at mncatholic.org. Besides speaking with Monsi today, we're going to talk in our mailbag segment about racism and what does it mean to use terms like systemic and institutional racism that are causing a lot of confusion in the wake of the protests and the aftermath of George Floyd's death. Finally, stick around for the Bricklayer segment where we've got some specific resources for how you can continue to mark Religious Freedom Week and to learn more about the issues that we talk about in today's show. Right now, we're joined on the line by Monsi Alvarado. She is Vice President and Executive Director of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. Monsi is also a lay consultant to the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops Committee on Religious Liberty. Beckett has helped secure religious liberty victories across uh, the, uh, the issues and across faiths, uh, from the contraceptive mandate to protecting the rights of churches to choose their leaders and their ministers, safeguarding the free speech uh, of crisis pregnancy centers, and religious groups on campus. We should also note, uh, before we jump in, in the interest of full disclosure, that the Beckett Fund just represented the Minnesota Catholic Conference and the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod here in Minnesota in our engagement and work with the governor uh, of Minnesota, Tim Walls, and the issue of churches reopening to the public in the wake of COVID-19. We're grateful for a positive resolution and grateful for the Beckett Fund's support and assistance in that uh, great endeavor. Now we're joined by Monsi Alvarado. Monsi, welcome to the Bridge Builder Program. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us about why you decided your, to focus your professional life defending religious liberty. Why does religious liberty matter to you? Goodness. Um, well, the wonderful thing about the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty is that we do defend religious freedom for all. So from the beginning, I think there were two things that called me to this mission. One was kind of the beauty of the, the foundations for the organization, which is Catholic teaching, Dignitatis Humanae, which I don't know if a lot of your listeners know about this, but it's a beautiful letter written to communicate the role of human dignity in the way that we think about the human person, but also in the way that we think about their freedoms, right? Our freedoms, where they come from, that they don't come from the government, they come from a higher power, and also that we have certain duties and responsibilities as, as individuals. Obviously, some duties to our government, but most of all, duties to be um, good and faithful and true to what it is that God wants from us, right? And so from that perspective, you can glean that Freedom of religion is truly the cornerstone of all of our First Amendment rights, particularly in the United States, because it's the one that allows us to do what is right, 
and to really live lives that are fruitful and to um, further human flourishing in a positive way um, and within the confines of, you know, the laws within our country. So the mission and the clarity of the mission was beautiful to me, but also just the fact that we weren't trying to push any kind of agenda. We were just trying to make sure that people's rights were protected and that in the greatest country in the world, we could continue to live what our Constitution promises us. And as an immigrant, that's really important to me. Um, I was born in Mexico, and in Mexico you have a big history of um, anti-Catholic persecution by the government. The Cristero movement from the 20s is one that is pretty well known. The Knights of Columbus did a beautiful movie on it. So there's definitely a tradition of um, a negative separation of church and state that has forced uh, religious, the vibrant religious life that is part of just the culture and history of Mexico um, to go by the wayside. And so I saw an opportunity in being an immigrant, but also one that, you know, loves the Constitution to really further my career, uh, doing something that was good for my faith, but also for, for people in general. And so I've been doing that for about 11 years now. What's your slogan from uh, A to Z? A to Z, Z, the Zoroastrian. Yeah, the Zoroastrian. (laughs) So you're defending Zoroastrians and and everyone in between. But interestingly, the Catholic Church has become probably the most prominent religious community defending religious liberty in the United States today, and perhaps even around the globe. Why is it important for Catholics to defend not just the freedom of the Church and their own free exercise of religion, but the rights and freedoms of others as well? You're completely right that the Church is at the forefront of the religious liberty fight, because for us, Our religion is incarnational, right? We don't just worship within the confines of the four walls of the church. We believe in going out and and helping others and really taking that commission um, that Jesus Christ gave us and and bringing the gospel through our good works, through our works of mercy, right? Um, And so that that continues to be one of the places of pushback where we don't have our own. We do have private institutions, but mostly we like to partner with the government. We like to be the hands and feet of the church alongside whatever it is that the government just cannot do for itself. And in terms of the mission and why religious freedom for all is important is our God, what we believe about God, right, is that he, he gives us the will to choose him. He doesn't force us to, to love him, worship him, believe in him, right? This is its free will. We come freely to Christ. And that freedom is really important, and it has to be one that is free of government intrusion. In this country, it has to be free of any kind of coercion from the government. And the Church knows that because of Church teaching, but it also knows that if it's going to defend that for its own people, it has to defend it for others. And in the same way, the Beckett Fund knows that you can't defend religious freedom just for some. You have to defend religious freedom for all. It's a, it's a good strategy because people understand that from a human rights perspective. It's an even better strategy because, as we've seen, um, courts and individuals don't really understand religious freedom for Christians anymore. They see it as something that isn't popular, but they definitely understand religious freedom for religious minorities who are persecuted around the, around the world. So you can bring a case for a Zoroastrian or for a Hindu or for a Muslim with the exact same facts as a case for a Christian, and the court will be much more willing to look at the facts associated with the religious minority case because they don't have this prejudice in their minds about what Christians believe and who they are. And and it's sad to say it that way, but that's where we are in our country right now because of our history. And we have to just be confident that we're doing the right thing, defending religious freedom for all, but also that there's a reality about why we have to band together and kind of get rid of the tribalism that got us in this problem to begin with. That reminds me of the quote from E.F. Schumacher, the great Catholic economist and convert, who in his book, Small is Beautiful, 
he called his proposal Buddhist economics because he said if he called it Christian, no one would really listen to him. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. And you know what? Some of that is our own fault, and we've done it to ourselves, and some of it isn't. I know that the Wall Street Journal has said a lot about religious freedom, and one of the things that they said is that, that you probably wouldn't be as willing to listen to the arguments of the Beckett Fund if we were led by a belligerent Baptist or whatever. You know, when you think of religious freedom, you have this caricature about what it's really about. And the reality is that the people who are behind the true religious freedom movement are Sikh, Muslim, Hindu, Catholic, Protestant, um, you know, evangelical, all cut Lutheran, all, all sorts come together looking for freedom in the, in the United States and in our Constitution, and when we should band together behind that. Monsi, say a little bit about, you know, that you talked about caricatures of religious freedom. That Often people seem to fail to distinguish between liberty and license, uh, that as though religious liberty advocates were asking for the freedom to do whatever we want, not the ability to respond to the call of the Creator consistent with our conscience. So we can discriminate, we can, you know, do human sacrifice, we can do all this stuff. That's what religious liberty advocates really want. How do you make that distinction with folks that liberty is not license? The problem is that the government has gotten so big that now you have to ask permission for things that before we took for granted. No one before questioned the ability of a private business and a private family-owned business to do business according to its religious beliefs. No one questioned that Catholic schools were Catholic and should be able to choose their own teachers. No one questioned that the Little Sisters of the Poor should be allowed to perform their ministry and not give in to government demands to violate their faith in order to do that good work that they do. No one questioned that Native Americans should be allowed to have eagle feathers that are passed down generation to generation for their, for their rituals. No one questioned these very basic things about religion, but as government continues to grow and grow and, and get into the intimate parts of our lives, the places where the church used to really, and I use the word church broadly, not just the Catholic church, but where the, the works of mercy and the works of taking care of individuals outside of work were done by religious believers, at least in the United States, I would say around the world, when they walk into that space, inevitably you have to then have these trade-offs and conversations about, well, this is how I do it, and I need this exemption from this law because that's how I've done it for 150 years, and it's worked out for us. But now that you're in, in my space and in my turf, you're trying to regulate it. So it's more, people like to talk about it in terms of license. It really is about liberty and the government growing and encroaching on the space that used to belong 100% to religious entities. Monsi, you said a little bit, alluded to it earlier, that we've kind of done this to ourselves in making religious liberty a bit of a dirty word. How, how has that come about? How has the culture changed so much around religious liberty? And how is Beckett and others working in the court of public opinion to change the narrative around what religious liberty is and what it isn't? That's a really tough question. You know, it's a tough one just because um, I'm not really big into self-flagellating. I really think that we are a good church and we have beautiful things to talk about and we should be positive in the narratives that we bring into the public square because I'm proud of the of what we do as a church. But I will say that religious liberty has been politicized. And in 1993, no one batted an eye when Bill Clinton signed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, right? No one thought that that was ever going to be a political issue. RIFRA was sponsored by Ted Kennedy and Senator Hatch, crossing the aisle over a right that is a human right, that is just so normal to think of as um, non-political. And then fast forward, we're quarter century into this, and all of a sudden it's a political issue. It's bad on us, I would say, because we allow it to be politicized. We allow 
political platforms to pick up this issue and to talk about it as something that only conservatives are interested in. But at the same time, you know, I would say that the Democratic Party has also decided not to talk about this issue as a human right as well. They don't talk about religious liberty. They don't think about the importance of it and, and these institutions for many reasons. But the moment that we get into talking about religious freedom as a political issue rather than as a human right, which a lot of us fall into, we start using rhetoric that is really going to deteriorate the positive foundations of these rights and of how essential they are to our freedom, everyone's freedom, whether they're popular or unpopular in their in their beliefs. For the listeners who've just joined in, we're speaking with Monsi Alvarado. She's executive director and vice president of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. Monsi, let me ask you this. Why are there so many cases regarding religious liberty in front of the Supreme Court right now? Is there something that ties these cases together? I know there's a lot of cases involving hiring, anti-discrimination, um, the intersection of religious liberty and discrimination. Or is it that the court has taken a special interest in those issues right now? I know there's also a, a case that, that a number of advocates are asking the court to hear about Catholic adoption agencies, for example. What's going on that's bringing these issues or making them bubble up to the surface in such a clear way? Yeah. Some of it is the role of government, like we talked about, government expanding, government regulating more and more, um, and the spaces for philanthropy becoming smaller, where a lot of things are government-funded that used to be funded completely by um, individual donations and just economic structures changing. So the change in our country to one that relies heavily on the administrative state, right, regulations both at the state level and the federal level, that is creating some conflicts that were never seen before. So I think that's a, a structural issue. I think culturally, we're losing our religion, right? We're losing our belief in, in, in God, and that's, that's a trend that um that isn't necessarily disputed you know a lot of very prominent places talk about polling on these issues but also you can see it you can see religious worship you can see people who are registering to be part of catholic parishes and catholic parishes parishes closing down around the country the next generation isn't necessarily one that wants to be part of a structural church and the moment that you're not part of a church that has rite and ritual you lose your religious literacy one of the most interesting things that pew has put out for me in my mind is not necessarily that people have stopped believing in god but they have stopped understanding what other people believe all of a sudden people no longer know what Christians or Catholics actually believe or what Jews believe. And God forbid you ask them about Islam. They have no clue what Muslims and Hindus believe. And as Americans, I think that's a big shame because we used to be a country that could talk about these things and was interested in learning about each other's neighbors, right? There was a campaign that was led by the White House in 2012 called the Know Your Neighbor campaign about religious diversity and religious faith. And I think that that deterioration on religious literacy is one that is fueling these conflicts. In not knowing each other, we, we assume the worst, and we, we lead with fear rather than courage and confidence, and assume that if you have something, I won't have it, rather than confidently believing that we can be a pluralistic country uh, where just because you disagree with me doesn't mean that I have to cancel you, right? Cancel culture coming in both from a speech perspective, but also from a lived reality. I don't believe in the phrase live and let live. I actually think that's a really ugly phrase because it assumes that I don't care about my neighbor, that I'm going to let you do what you want, even if it's bad for you. And I would want to lose that. <laughs> but I do think that we can live alongside people that we disagree with, hoping for the best for them, praying for the best for them, and trying to be in community, even with people that we don't necessarily share or beliefs with. It's almost as though the folks who have the coexist bumper stickers are the ones who are least knowledgeable and, in fact, the least tolerant 
about uh, people of faith and what they think they represent and what they believe and the lived experience. Yeah. The lived experience is that people of different faiths uh, have that commonality that they have a belief in the supernatural or understand that there's a reality outside of the material. And so there's a shared value and, and a shared tolerance in that sense. And that the uh, the dividing line is less among the religions and having them coexist, but almost as though it's between non-believers and actually believers regardless of creed. Oh, for sure. And it's interesting to think about um, what the Supreme Court has said about this. Uh, justice Kagan, who isn't someone that you would say is a, a conservative justice or someone that is necessarily aligned with the views of religious believers all the time. I mean, she's she said some great things, you know, being a part of some great majority decisions like Hosanna Tabor, which gave church autonomy rights to uh, religious schools around the country. But I think that she said it best when she said that religious groups are that critical buffer between the state and the, indi um, and the individual. They provide, whether you believe in them or not, you should really believe in religious freedom because we know what ultimate government power looks like and what it can do. And it's a shame to see it around the world, but we're so grateful not to have it here on our American soil, right? And, and I'm not saying this to be too overly political, but everyone can imagine right now a government that they would not want to be in power, whether you want to vote for the people who are up for re-election or not up for re-election or the new candidates that are there, you can imagine not wanting them to have total power over your person, which means you should be invested in religious liberty. Um, and, and I hope that future generations understand that. I know you're going to talk about the race issue in your next, because you, you put that in your promo. I think that's great. I can tell you that for me, this is a moment where the coexist sticker really annoys me. And in the same way that people who put up things in social media, the lip service that's paid to these issues, and particularly within congregants and prisoners in our church, you know, as a Mexican immigrant, I have definitely seen discrimination both for me and for my African-American friends. And I think that there's one thing is to put up a thing on your social media. And another thing is to really live that community and love and solidarity with people who are different from you. And I, I hope that we will stop putting up stickers and stop, you know, doing things that pay lip service to these movements and actually live what it means to bridge the, those gaps and cross the aisle and try to walk in someone else's shoes. Outstanding. Thank you. Thank you for that, Monsi. I want to just shift gears a little bit and talk about why Beckett chose to work with us here in Minnesota on the issue of churches reopening. And it's an, I think it's an important teaching moment in the sense that Religious liberty advocates always stipulate that thing that all liberties can be uh, regulated when there's a compelling governmental interest and some other tests are satisfied. But public health, of course, is a compelling governmental interest. So why was the case here in Minnesota so important to you from the standpoint of it advancing a principle and then uh, later on in, in Madison when you work with the Diocese of Madison down there? Sure. You know, in, um, in these moments of crisis, we rely on the government to keep us safe, and that's a good thing. That is one of the roles that the government plays that, are, that is really important, right? And that phrase that you use, compel compelling interest, it means that the government has to have a really, really, really good reason for burdening your religious beliefs. So keeping us home, keeping us from creating an even bigger epidemic in our country, that was a really good reason to keep us home. And everyone agreed. We all shut our doors you know, packed our kitchens <laughs> and made sure that we didn't have to go outside unless we needed to because we were doing it both for ourselves but for vulnerable populations within our communities. No one is disputing that. Absolutely not. But when you're starting to reopen, when you're starting to consider what comes next, you have to have religion right alongside everything else. And if anything, that's, and that's like the minimum requirement. If anything, we know that religion has a very special protected place 
in our American society. And so it gets precedence over everyone else because of our, our First Amendment, right, and the way that it's delineated there. But when you're starting to reopen, we were watching this very carefully. A lot of governors, a lot of, you know, county executives were just, and mayors were deciding to reopen in a way that was unequal. And they were using their own prudential judgment to decide who got to open and who didn't and how they got to do it. And the church um, has done a really beautiful job, I would say across the board, in trying to work alongside health officials to develop these beautiful plans that speak to keeping everyone safe, but at the same time allowing them to have the sacraments. And we know that this confinement has been hard on everyone. People are getting depressed. People are, you know, being in situations where they usually go to church for solace, where they have community where they can reach out to and feel heard and feel seen. And we were not giving them that. We were prioritizing business and tattoo parlors and malls and retail over the um, spiritual uh, health and um, that our community really needs. And that's wrong. It's wrong and it's unconstitutional. So for us, it was a privilege to partner with you and to be able to find a solution, uh, knowing that, you know, they're probably, maybe there weren't good intentions, maybe there were. I really don't care about that. And I don't think we cared about that. We just wanted to make sure that we got that door open and that we allowed people to go back to church on par with uh, the reopening plans for the other for the other businesses. Shopping might be a religion for some, but it can't substitute for the real thing. Right, Monsi? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Say, we got time for just one more question. The, the two of us have the blessing to serve on the USCCB's Religious Liberty Committee. This show will air right square in the middle of Religious Liberty Week. Why do you think an important or an observance like that is important uh, for the church, and how can Catholics take the most advantage of it? It's really important to take a moment and reflect on the blessings we have in our lives and, in, and by living virtue of living in this country. And it's easy to forget that we have it better than everyone else because we don't, we're not forced, thank God, we are not forced to reflect on it. Religious liberty violations are not rampant in our country. You know, there are specific places where we're trying to negotiate the right role of religion and, and government in our country, but we are free people. And we forget that because we have so much freedom. We have so much wonderful access to, to be able to say what we think and worship in, the, in, in, in whatever way we, we deem fit for our personal lives. Uh, because we're so blessed, we forget. And so carving out a moment both as a church but also as Americans to remember that we are Catholic first. Um, everything that we do has to be Catholic first. And yes, render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but also remember that you, your home and your family and your belief in God and your relationship with Jesus Christ and his mother has to be central in your life and, and primary to everything else. So I, I commend the bishops for putting that together. I love that we have a week to reflect on that and reading about it, talking to people about it, maybe reaching out to um, within your family or within your community, having these important discussions about how you feel about these issues and maybe trying to understand what the church actually teaches on religious freedom would be a, a good thing to do. And they're always, everyone's always welcome to look at the Beckett Fund's website, beckettlaw.org. We have a lot of great information there about what's going on in our country and how to think about religious freedom. Outstanding. Monsi Alvarado, Executive Director and Vice President at the Beckett Fund. Monsi, thanks for joining us today, and thanks for your principled and passionate advocacy for religious liberty. Thank you so much. We'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. The St. Joseph Business Guild, supporting Catholic families by connecting Catholic business owners to workers and customers. By joining the St. Joseph Business Guild, you'll be able to connect with all our members, access our pages for job postings, 
job seekers, mentors, and an online business directory. We also host retreats, lectures, liturgies, and networking events. The St. Joseph Business Guild is your chance to network with other Catholics, start a business, find a better job, find employees, find or become a mentor. Join the St. Joseph Business Guild to help build a Catholic community that helps one another. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to delve into our mailbag. Kit, what's the question for this week? Yeah, so today's question has come up in the wake of the death of George Floyd. Today's question is, what does the term systemic racism mean? Yeah, it's always important when talking and and framing a conversation to know your terms and understand your terms and make sure everyone's on the same page, because if you're not speaking in the same way and using the same terms, it's hard to have a real dialogue and an effective conversation about really, really important issues. And oftentimes it seems we're talking past each other so much in our public discourse. So uh, this term systemic racism, it's being used in church documents, so just open wide our hearts, the USCCB's document on racism, seeing a number of bishops use the term systemic racism. It's certainly a conversation piece in our public conversation. How does it, what is it, and how is it different than individual racism? And you might just say that, you know, making some distinctions here, individual racism could refer to an individual's racist assumptions, beliefs, or behaviors. And one way of looking at it is a form of racial discrimination that stems from conscious or unconscious personal prejudice. I think that's something that pretty much everyone gets, that that's how individual racism works. Systemic racism, though, is something a little bit different. And you could say it differs from overt discrimination or racism and is that no individual intent is necessary, but it includes policies and practices entrenched in established institutions, which result in the exclusion or promotion of designated groups. So it's like racism being built into institutions, regardless of intent, and they may be reflective of bias or have disproportionate effects on particular races or particular groups. So oftentimes we'll hear related terms like institutional racism or structural racism. Institutions are actually being structured uh, in a way that excludes people or uh, contributes to racism and disparities. Now, the question is, is every disparity uh, an example of systemic racism? Uh, That's a a question for public debate, and they have to be looked at on case-by-case basis. One could argue that um, the easy examples, of course, of systemic racism, Jim Crow laws, the separate but equal regime that was struck down by Brown versus Board of Education. But then again, as the definition I'm uh, using here from the I'm looking at this, the Calgary Anti-Racism Education Group, which uh, from the Alberta Civil Liberties Research Center, just so you know where I'm getting this from and I'm citing it, the definitions that they lay out highlight that it not, need not be intentional. So it could be built in to the structures of the system. So the question is, looking at systemic racism, what does it mean? How does it function? And then have a conversation about how it's actually operating in our criminal justice system. Is it an example of the, the fact that you have more 
African-Americans being disciplined in schools versus other races? Is that example of systemic racism? Uh, What about abortion clinics and payday lending institutions being put in poor African-American neighborhoods? Is that an issue of systemic racism? I'm not going to here to debate which ones are and which ones aren't reflective of systemic racism, but just lay out what it is we're talking about when we use those terms, and then we can have a more productive conversation about what that means. And that's really, really important in this times we're talking about policing reform, criminal justice reform. What does a racial equity and inclusion agenda look like? These are important issues, and we have to define our terms. Great. Thanks so much for kind of breaking that down, helping us to understand that a little more. What do we have this week in the bricklayer segment? How can people start laying the bricks to build the bridge? Well, it's Religious Freedom Week. What can you do? How can you understand uh, more deeply the issues that are going on right now? It could be the case that some major issues or cases have been decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. What do those mean? What is their impact? Especially cases about the Little Sisters of the Poor, their fight against the contraceptive mandate, the Supreme Court's a decision involving Blaine amendments and its impact on Catholic education, cases involving uh, anti-discrimination laws, what do those mean, hiring and firing in Catholic schools. If you enjoy listening to the Bridge Builder program, you may also want to listen to the USCCB's First Freedom podcast put out by the staff at the USCCB and those working on religious liberty issues. You can find out more about uh, their First Freedom podcast by going to usccb.org and clicking on Religious Liberty under the Issues and Actions tab. All sorts of information there about Religious Freedom Week and how you can make the most of that observance and follow up on what Monsi was saying earlier with regard to praying and reflecting on the blessings that we do have. So again, go to usccb.org, click on Religious Liberty under Issues and Action. That's all the time we have for today. A special thank you to our show's sponsor, the St. Joseph Business Guild, which helps connect employers and job speakers. More information about St. Joseph Business Guild at sjbusinessguild.com. Remember, you or your organization can also become a sponsor of the Bridge Builder Program contact kit show at mncatholic.org for more sponsorship opportunities. Thanks so much for listening to the Bridge Builder Program today. I'm Jason Adkins for the Minnesota Catholic Conference and for Kit Cross. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day.